Blog Talk Radio. Hello, and welcome to the Story Blender. I'm Stephen James, and this is where great storytellers share the secrets of great storytelling. Now, I met today's guest at a writing conference in Seattle a number of years ago, and I was so impressed not just with his writing but his insights about the craft and his creativity that I knew I wanted him to be a guest on the show, and so I'm thrilled that he has joined us today. C.C. Humphreys is a playwright, fight choreographer, and novelist who has written 11 adult novels, including the French executioner runner-up for the C.W.A. Steel Dagger for Thrillers. He's also written three YA novels, and his books have appeared in the top ten on the Globe and Mail and Toronto Star bestseller lists. As an international bestseller, his works appear in 13 languages and... In addition to decades as an actor for both stage and screen, he has an MFA in creative writing. So, Chris, it's great to have you on. Well, after that intro, it's great to be here. (laughs) (laughs) I still remember when we were on a panel together out in, I'm pretty sure it was at a Seattle conference for writers, and uh, I just enjoyed your spontaneity and wit, and I thought, this guy's fun to be with, and uh, look forward to picking your brain today. Oh, excellent. Yeah, no, it was definitely, it was PNWA in Seattle. Oh, that's right. Yeah, yeah, it was. And um, so right off the bat, I was just curious. I know that you've done a lot of writing over the years, um, but you've also worked for years as an actor. How, I'm just curious, how does that work? Have have you picked up tips uh, from being an actor or experiences like that that might help someone who's a storyteller but who hasn't been trained uh, classically in acting or maybe not have the experience? Is there anything that, um, that you could share that might be specific, easy-to-remember instructions for people who might be orally storytelling? Mm, interesting, yeah. Uh, well, you, you know, the, the, the question that, that's often asked is, how does, does my acting life affect my writing life, or does my sure. process as an actor affect the writing, and which is, is, is sort of what you're saying. Um, passing it on um, to someone who hasn't had acting experience is, is slightly trickier, but, but I, 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 can, I can certainly have a stab at it. The, you know, what, what I use as a writer uh, is often derived from stuff I learned as an actor, particularly in regard to character, you know, uh, with uh, any, any writer at any stage is, uh, when writing fiction particularly, is trying to create interesting characters, well-rounded characters. Right. And my particular thing is what I call character in action. It's obviously three words, not two, because character in action would be a really dull book. Character in action. <laughs> um, and... Um, and so, you know, characters basically revealed by what they do. That's partly what they say as well. So acting 101, you know, when you're in your first year at drama school and they're trying to get you to, you know, when you hit that stage to, to be present and interesting, is um, to, to keep in your mind very clearly um, some, some fairly simple things. I mean, I always try to simplify everything in my life as much as possible, the acting and the writing. And the simple things you do as an actor are, as you hit the stage, you go, uh, what do I want? Uh, who's stopping me getting it? Um, how do I react to that? You know, you're keeping open, but using your objective to 
pursue your intention. And so you, you know, you, you walk onto, uh, into a room. I mean, you could do this. This is what I use as a writer as well. You know, you, one character walks into a room. There's a gun on the table in the center of the room. By the other door, another man comes in, and you look at each other. What is your objective? Get to the gun first, I would say. <laughs> um, what's his objective? The same thing. What's your obstacle? He gets there quicker than you. How do you stop that? And so you write the action. Um, so I think uh, objectives and obstacles are something I talk about a lot, especially when I teach writing, and simplifying the, the process as much as possible, because we all know writing can be quite complicated, and, and I just like to get all the other stuff out of the way and get down to the basics of character. So as an actor, um, that's what I would do. You know, you can't imagine that all new writers are going to immediately, um, you know, have all the insights into being an actor. But, you know, the simple insights of wanting something and how it then translates into action can definitely be uh, transferred into writing. Absolutely. Yeah, those are great questions, and I feel like they are at the heart of character development. And when you were talking about, um, you know, just the idea of walking on stage, and, and I was thinking of this one um, director that I, at one time I had done a camp for children uh, with a, a theater director at a local college, and I was doing the storytelling section on it, and he was doing theater for children. And, and I said, what is your definition of acting? And he thought about it for a minute, and he said, well, let me give you an example. I was like, okay. He said, sometimes in my classes I'll take a $10 bill and I'll hide it somewhere in the room. And then I'll say to the students, all right, you have one minute to find the $10. If you find it, you can keep it. And I'll say, go. And so people will go, and they'll search for the $10 bill. And, and after a minute, he'll say, okay, you know, time's up. And if someone found it, fantastic. And if not, you know, then he'll go and reveal where it was. And um, then he'll say this, how many of you were really looking for a $10 bill? And most hands go up. He said, how many of you were acting like you were looking for a $10 bill? And a few maybe hands go up. And then he'll say, what was the difference? And then they start to talk about the specificity of the search, if you're really looking for it, and how it, the belief that the $10 bill is there really shaped the believability of the search. And if they were just sort of acting like they were searching, they didn't really – do it as well. And so he said, in a sense, acting is doing. I've heard some people say acting is reacting. But I think both of them get to the heart of this idea that you imagine it and you really try to encapsulate it and not, not um, I guess, perform it in a certain way, but in, almost like um, let, it, let it, I don't know, not take you over, but that, that sounds weird. Um, yeah. No, well, yeah. I mean, there, there are the, the method school would say that that's what you absolutely need to do: get the get taken over by uh, hmm. the the character and the quest. But I, no, I think that's I think that's a really good analogy. The, you know, the, is it is it um, is it pretense or is it is it some um, form of of trying to um, achieve a, a reality and a truth? And I think you know, it, truth is is of interest to everyone. And if you can get more of that into your writing through characters being truthful and, and reacting to circumstance in an understandably human way, and a really varied way, obviously, because we all react differently given our backgrounds and, and, and our needs. But, but, yeah, I mean, truth is always going to be interesting. And I think, you know, acting, acting is about 
uh, good, really good acting is is about truth. Except, of course, you're in the in the uh, in the um, the paradox of it, it is also artificial, right? Yeah. Because it's it is it is performance. So it, it's an interesting and fine line. Yeah. You know, the same with the writing. It's um, it's uh, you're, you're you're trying to achieve a sort of truth, but there's also a performative quality to it. You know, you're, you're wanting it to be seen or read and and taken in and understood. So. Um, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, my 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 grandfather supposedly uh, said my grandfather. All my grandparents were actors, actually, as was my dad. But my my dad told me that his father had said to him, "Son, acting is all about sincerity, hmm. and once you learn to fake that, you're an actor." <laughs> Which yeah, I always thought. I like is, that. Yeah, it's good, isn't it? <laughs> Many years ago, I took an acting class with someone who had been the acting coach for Michelle Pfeiffer and a gentleman named Gregory Peck. Oh, yeah. And wow. as part of his class, he took a shoe and set it out in the middle of the room, maybe 30 feet from everyone. We were in an old uh, old barn that was now an acting studio. And he said, all right, I want you to go out and pick up the shoe. And everyone's like, come on, let's just do some improv, you know. But he said, no, the key is you're going to be blindfolded when you do it. So one by one, people would be blindfolded, and they kind of walk down, out into the, the room and reach down. And, and I'm standing there watching them go, and I'm thinking, I'm going to get this shoe. Like, I am not going to miss it. No one else was even close. So I'm, like, calculating the distance based on my stride, you know, and everything. And so finally I get the blindfold, I walk out there, and, man, I reach down, and I knew that the shoe was right by my leg. So I reached down, kind of turned to everyone, patted my chest, you know, like, watch this. I close my hand, and there's no shoe there. So I feel around, there's no shoe. I'm on my hands and knees feeling there's, there's no shoe. And finally I open my eyes, and five feet in front of me, the shoe's sitting. I'm all embarrassed, you know, and I go back, <laughs> back to the line. And, and um, so he comes over, and he says, Steve, you were the only one who closed your hand when you reached down why did you do that? And I said, well, I'm kind of embarrassed, but I said I was completely certain that the shoe was there. And then he said, that's how certain you need to be when you tell your stories. And it wasn't that I had planned to close my hand. I just uh, had uh, I had this belief, right, that the shoe was there and my body mm. acted naturally to it. And so since then I've told people in my seminars on storytelling to um, – Pretend less and believe more. And I feel like in no matter if we're trained as actors or whatever, if we're communicators or storytellers, you know, we, we can improve by sort of stepping into the story, seeing it occur around us, and then pretending less and uh, believing more. Absolutely. No, I, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I, I just had a very interesting experience because I still um, you know, put on the acting hat once in a while. And... Um, uh, even though I'm, I'm primarily a writer these days, but I but I need acting, and you know, it's so so much in the fiber of my being. Um, and so once in a while, I do something really interesting. And I did this uh, Samuel Beckett play. You know, many of your listeners will know him as the man who wrote Waiting for Godot. Oh, yeah. um, but he did a he did a one man play called Crap's Last Tape. And I just did that and um, rediscovered all the joy I'd had because I hadn't. You know, I'd done a lot of more short form television acting some indie indie movies but i hadn't done anything as intense as inhabiting in, in this case the role of this uh, guy called victor crap who is a 69 year old failed irish writer listening to tapes he'd made 30 years before when he made mm. a sort of crossroads decision and it was absolutely wonderful and and 
um, a lot of the a lot of the players actually listening to the tapes he made thirty or a particular tape he made thirty years before when he essentially gave up love for art and art didn't work out so good. Huh. Um, but um, I, when we so we had to record the tapes, um, you know, obviously not thirty years before, but I recorded them three months before, so they were already in my past, which was interesting. But also when we recorded them, it took a day to do all this recording. It was quite a lot of stuff, and every time we did it. It was very clear to the director and myself when it was truthful and when it wasn't, when there was a performance going on and when there was just an inhabiting going on. And, um, you know, each time we went, that's the one, you know, Um, and and it it again came back to that word, which I love, which is simplify. The the simpler it was, the um, the truer it was. Yeah, no, that's that's interesting. It also brings up this topic that I know you've read some of your audiobooks, haven't you? I have indeed. Yeah. Has that been a good experience for you, or would you recommend that for um, other authors? Or what, are, what was your sort of take on this idea of doing – now, you have been trained, but, um, but doing your own audiobooks. Well, I and it's interesting because I'm I'm looking to do more of those because I've only done a number. I've done about five of my books, and I, I and I've written well sixteen now with the new one. Um, so I want I want to get the others down as well, and I've even bought some home recording equipment to do it. Um, the uh, uh, yes, I mean I I think it's a great experience. Obviously, if you're trying to sell it, you've got to reach a really um, a, a good standard, and and right. um, you know, and and so the the training for that helps. I wouldn't recommend that that every person does it unless they feel very confident in their in their performance abilities and their voice. Um, I but it, it was funny the first time. This is the, 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 the first takeaway of doing the audiobooks. The first time I went into a studio to record my very first novel, The French Executioner, which was about the man who killed Anne Boleyn, um, I, you know, and that was the, the hard one novel, the first one, the one I, you know, had waited years to write and then exploded out of me, and lo and behold, it, it sold and, you know, and one then was runner up for that big award. And, and anyway, so I went into the studio. And I, I sat down, and um, there we were. And I, I mean, I'm used to microphones and used to studios because I've done radio work and cartoon work and stuff, so I'm comfortable with that. And I sit down. Anyway, I start reading it, and I get about a, about you know half a page in, and I stop. And the and the uh, sound engineer goes, you know, comes on on the the mic and goes, "Are you all right, Chris?" And I go, "Yeah, yeah, just give me a moment." I'm grinning to myself because I'd had this realization that I'd never had before until I started doing it was that I write to be read aloud Mm. by myself. (laughs) You know, it was absolutely my voice. And people who uh, I've often been told by people who read my books, they say, oh, I can hear you. I can hear you, you know, in the the way you write. And and I go, yeah, yeah, I suppose my my voice, you know, which is something all writers wrestle with, but but my voice is is very clearly mine, you know. And... um, and uh, yeah, it was uh, it was an interesting uh, revelation, but it's a it's a it's a terrific experience reading it um, because it really does show you. Uh, I mean, you're often going back to a book you did, you know, maybe a year before or even you know some years before, and um, it points up. I mean, I know a lot of authors will read their stuff aloud, you know, at the end of a day's work or even as they're going. I I don't do that because I think I have, um, you know, the the track in my head's pretty clear anyway, possibly because of my background. 
yeah. But um, I do uh, I, I do find it very interesting when I'm when I'm uh, reading aloud for the audiobook that it, it it teaches me a lot about my own storytelling techniques actually. I feel like you have honed your ability to tell stories both on stage and in the training that you've done and also just on the page for many years of writing. Um, but I also feel like you have a natural bent for storytelling. I remember when we first met and you told a story that I said to myself, that has to be a book someday. But wasn't it about you, one of your relatives who ended up being a spy? Um, yeah, not only one of my relatives, my mother. Your mother, that's, that's what it My was. My mother was a, was a spy in the Norwegian resistance during the war, yeah. Yeah, tell us about that. That was, a, that was fascinating. Um, ah, well, it's, it's, it, it is interesting, and it's quite current at the moment. I've got a, a, a bid in uh, to the Canada Council for the Arts, which is our big arts awarding body up here, because I, I've, I've decided I really want to write my parents' story. Yeah. Um, and originally, I, I'd come up with this idea, and indeed a publisher was very happy if I wrote it, um, was going to even give me a little money towards writing it, uh, of, of a fictionalized version of my parents' story. But the more I started working on it, the more I realized that I was, I was sort of bending their story away from what actually happened in the, in the, in the cause of fiction. And I realized sure. I didn't want to do that with my parents' story. I'd really like to write it as a memoir. Nice. Uh, not not only a memoir of them, but a memoir of them in relation to me. You know, who were these people who shaped me, really, and and what was, how were they shaped by circumstance? And the war would be the central focus, but not the only focus of that, because they, you know, they didn't arrive in 1939, you know, with a blank as a blank page. They arrived with their own things going on. So, so yeah, so I'm I'm very interested in that. But but the actual yeah the, I mean my my dad was a fighter pilot and my mum was a spy so it was quite a glamorous thing to live <laughs> up to, um, and um, yeah my mum was um, Norwegian uh, and she was uh, she wasn't actually in uh, in Norway when war broke out she was in London but she went back to Norway and of course the Germans didn't invade for another seven months so she was back in Oslo when the Germans invaded. And was very clear immediately uh, that that th- this was something she would not tolerate. My mum was quite a fierce woman in lots of ways, and her she was she was working for a, a shipping um, guy. He ran a shipping business, and he immediately said, "Look, I'm getting involved. Will you?" And she said, "Of course." And so for a year, she became essentially a courier running messages between the people who were noting all the movements of shipping in, in the Oslo fjord there. Um, and and uh, they would take it down and she would put, it would be put in code and then she'd put the pieces of paper in a pouch um, and, and which she concealed under her, under her blouse. And, um, and, uh, and then she would take it to a, outside Oslo to a ruined church where she'd meet this red-bearded man whose name she never knew because it was safe not to know. Um, and she would hand that over, and he would take it to the radio operators, and, and so it went for about a year until the cell was busted. And she she showed up at the church, and he wasn't there, and she went to a safe house, and they said, no, you're out of here, lady. And so she managed to take a train down to the Swedish border, and, and the resistance, local resistance got her to a farmer who got her across the border on a bicycle at dawn into Sweden. 
So, um, oh, nice. <laughs> oh, amazing, amazing. And then there was all further adventures to get to London, but she got to London uh, within, a, within a month or so where her boss already was and, and joined Norwegian naval intelligence there and uh, saw out the rest of the war in uniform in London. Um, yeah. But yeah, quite, quite the story. story. <laughs> you do need to write. I'm, I'm sure well, you I will. Well, I do. And uh, there's an extra sort of wrinkle to it all in that my mother was a former Ms. Oslo. Okay. So she, she was sort of quintessential uh, Norwegian beauty. And so the Germans actually loved her, of course, because they loved all that uh, Northern European stuff. And so I think that probably helped her a lot in that instead of, you know, whenever they met her treating her badly, they treated her rather well because she was she was sort of, you know, as I say, Northern European womanhood personified, you know. Yeah. How about that? That's Yeah, yeah. I mean, all of us have, you know, unique stories from our past, from growing up. And, and I think whether we speak professionally or speak at certain events, we can tap into some of those to find interesting anecdotes. But also when we write our fiction, I think, you know, our own experiences clearly shape the types of stories that we write. Absolutely. Now one, yeah. Now, what, your newest book actually is a historical book. It's not exactly about your mother as a spy. But uh, tell us a little bit about your, your latest project. So my novel, which, which came out only this week, uh, is called Chasing the Wind. And it's about a 1930s aviatrix. Uh, I don't know if all your uh, listeners will be familiar with that term, but the aviatrix was like was the female aviator, so it was a woman pilot. And it's set in the 1930s, mainly in 1936-37, and it concerns the uh, the um, activities and adventures of uh, this pilot called Roxy, Roxy Lowen. And she's an American. She's uh, the daughter of a very wealthy man who loses all his money in the Great Crash. Um, and um, she essentially escapes um, his his creditors because she's the uh, he dies he dies under a tram in New York City. Um, when the creditors are after him, and she basically takes off, grabs her plane, and flies to Canada. And that's the prologue. And then the next time we meet her, she's um, she's all about the money, Roxy. Um, and she's running guns to the Ethiopians who are fighting Mussolini uh, in Africa. And she's she's made what she would really consider a mistake. She, she says at one point, um, you should never fall in love with a flyer. You should only be in love with flight. And she's made them, she doesn't fall for pilots normally, but she's fallen for this guy called Jocko. And he's, of course, she's fallen for the guy, right? And the guy, <laughs> in this case, is an idealist, complete contrary to her. Though she's got a harder girl, really, and she cares more than, he says at one point, you care them more than you'd admit. But, but he's the real idealist. He's actually a communist, a German communist called Jocko, and he's all about you know, the, you know, fighting for the worker and all that. And anyway, they, you know, they, they do, they're very keen on each other in Africa and they have all these adventures, but, but he, um, is the son of an art dealer. Um, you know, he's actually quite a, you know, he's a wealthy, wealthy young man. And, um, the father has found Bruegel's Fall of Icarus, the original painting that supposedly was done on wood rather than the canvas one that still exists. And so he, he offers Roxy a lot of money to fly into Madrid, pick it up, get it to Berlin, and sell it. And she'd, she'd get a big share and she could buy her next plane. But unfortunately, the Germans are after it. And in the shape of Hermann Goering's agents, uh, steal the painting from Roxy 
and uh, and she follows it to Berlin, and they uh, she and Jocko uh, try to steal it back. I mean, I'm not going to tell you the whole story, obviously. No, no, yeah. Want to go and buy it. But 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 it ends up. You know, so it's 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 partly a, a a love story. It's an adventure story. It's a thriller. It's a romance, um, and it's also a. Um, uh, a, uh, a, a well, it ends up really as a locked room mystery, because the whole shebang ends up uh, on the Hindenburg, on its last flight. So there's all that. <laughs> so what what inspired you when you first started with this, you know, complex, creative, just really fresh and different type of story? What inspired me? Well, it, it was interesting. I I I decided. I'd want, I wanted to get into the 20th century at last. I was having, you know, talked about my mother as I did. I, I decided I was really interested, always have been interested, I suppose, in World War II. And, and the run-up to it, uh, particularly, you know, the 1930s, I think it was such an interesting decade. And um, so I, and, and since, you know, my parents were obviously alive and, and indeed quite shaped by that decade, I thought I'd really take a look at that. And my dad was a fighter pilot. You know, I was interested in flying. I came up with this idea for this guy, actually, who was going to be, you know, I, I kind of like, you know how Raymond Chandler talks about the tarnished knight, mm. so, you know, the, the man who, who must, you know, go down these mean streets must go, who is in himself not mean. You know, he's, he's, he's the Philip Marlowe character. He's kind of rough around the edges, but he's, he's basically got a heart in there somewhere. And I, you know, like Rick in Casablanca or someone like that. And so I was going to write about one of those guys. I kind of liked those guys. And, and I was having a beer, actually, with my former editor, not even my current editor, in London, a friend of mine called John Wood. And he, when I told him a bit of the story, he said, why don't you make her a woman? Why don't you make mm. the pilot a woman? And I went, that's a hell of an idea. And I immediately started researching it. Of course, Amelia Earhart and uh, Amy Johnson and Beryl Markham and all these fantastic women stories came up. And so I, I thought, yep. And, and that began that journey. And then I thought, well, where could she come out of? And I thought of, um, of Amelia Earhart uh, and her group of people. They formed this amazing organization called the 99s, which is the first all-women flying association, which still exists to this day. Huh. And, um, and they formed it. Um, this is, this is, I'm always, I always seem to be quite lucky in my research. They formed it three days after the, the great crash happened. <laughs> so I had the tie-in there. So her father basically throws himself under a tram because he's being pursued by his nemesis, uh, who's the villain throughout the book, this um, blowhard American billionaire called uh, Sidney um, Sydney Monroe. And he's kind of after Roxy because of she's still, you know, she, he's owed all this money. And anyway, he's after her. And he's after the painting too. And uh, and then, um, uh, so so that... Three days after the great crash, when Roxy's dad goes down, the organization formed, and they, basically the girls, help Roxy escape. So that timed out very well. And, um, yeah, and then it just became, you know what it's like. It's, uh, it's the rabbit hole of research. You dive in, and you find all these amazing things, and you think, oh, I have to write about that. And, you know, I, I, always, I always say, especially when I'm teaching this stuff, you know, that, that, that research, of course, the details are important, but research is actually about uh, finding these things that are the springboard for the imagination. Mm, they just yeah. take you off into these cool, 
un, you know, uncharted territories, the ones you hadn't seen when you were getting into it. And, uh, and so finding out all about that, discovering about this lost Bruegel that supposedly existed, knowing Goering's uh, love of, you know, stealing art, um, and, um, you know, and, and you essentially wanted to stick one to the Nazis. Um, this all, this all sort of factoring in. And then, of course, the, the Berlin Olympics came in because that's, you know, Roxy's there when the Olympics are happening. And that's another whole fascinating backdrop and trip. And, you know, my, my, um, the thing I do that I've really always done is to take characters and uh, and set them against the big backdrops. You know, my last two novels, uh, which haven't been seen in America yet, but I'm hoping to change that, uh, Plague and Fire, were really religious fundamentalist serial killer stories set against the Great Plague and Great Fire of London. So, you know, taking interesting characters, uh, sometimes dark characters, and, and putting them up against the backdrop, you know, I did that with Chasing the Wind. There's Roxy and Jocko set against the backdrop of the Berlin Olympics, which were stunning and scary, and, of course, the Hindenburg, which is scary in a different way. That's fascinating. You know, I, my hat always goes off to people who write historical stories because I just think the research that goes into them is impressive. And, you know, there are always sort of those people out there like, okay, let's see, the nitpicker people. And if you can satisfy those people, they read it and they're like, okay, no, check, 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 that makes sense. And it's pretty astonishing to me. Uh, well, you know, I, I mean, I learned long ago what held me back for years, and again, I, I, this is all stuff that I that I try to convey to people, um, was the, was the that panel of critics, you know, who would say, yeah. oh, you know, nitpick all my stuff. They don't exist. If they do, they need to get a life, right? They need <laughs> to get a go, life. Sir. Yeah, you, you need to tell your story, and you're going to get the odd thing wrong. Of course, you are, but as long as you're pretty scrupulous, and you don't make any sort of egregious mistakes. Um, people are going to get caught up in the story, and that's what they want. It's the story that really counts. You mentioned how sometimes when you're researching something, just connections occur that you had no idea about beforehand. In one of my, uh, actually my first novel, The Pawn, there's a subplot that has to do with the Jonestown Massacre back in the 70s with oh, yeah. Jones and so on. And there were a few people who survived, and I was able to track down one of the three remaining people who was still alive to interview him for information about this event. And um, and so he, he gave me all of this background information, and then I added to that the research that I was doing, and I discovered that Jim Jones had recorded many of his messages or sermons or whatever it was you would call that he, he, he did when he spoke to people. And, and so the FBI, after the massacre, collected them all and basically just filed them away. Well, then, because of a Freedom of Information Act request, I think in 2005 or something, they were released. And so people started to listen through, and they found one that was recorded the day after the massacre. And that you can hear a door close, you can hear a couple of mumbled voices, and then in the background you can hear the radio announcer talking about the suspected you know, something has gone on in this compound and so on. And, and so there were, there were at least two or three people who were still alive who uh, were there with 914 bodies all around them. And they'd been there wow. for the last, you know, 20 hours or so. And, and so it's, 
it's tape number Q eight seven five, and so Ooh. nobody knows nobody knows you know who made the tape or who was present. But there are all these conspiracies that it was CIA agents and that they had constructed the whole thing as a mind control you know thing and everything. Well, anyway, oh. so in my book I explain who made Q eight seven five and why, but it was. One of those little nuggets of research that comes up, and you just say, "This is too good to not to not use." I've got to figure out a way to use this. Uh, oh, absolutely! I have one in in the Berlin Olympics, which um, you know I, I watched a lot of the movies. You can you know, find all this amazing stuff on on YouTube, um, but um, and I, I read a lot about it. And so she's there at the opening ceremony, Roxy. Uh, you know, you have your eyewitness to history. And, of course, the, the machine, the Nazi machine, had created this extraordinary, the, the first of the, of the modern opening ceremonies, really, this flawless, machine-like, um, uh, you know, the, giving the idea of the, of, the, of the Superman, which, of course, is what uh, Hitler was aiming for. Yeah. And everything was so precise, you know, every march, every bit of music, everything like that. And then, you know, after the Olympic torch was lit by this one young runner who'd run up the steps and, and there was this pause as he raised the torch and he and Hitler basically made eye contact and in the pause was the power. And then he lit the torch and everything was like, and then immediately afterwards, they fired, they, they released 5,000 pigeons and these doves flew over the, uh, the Olympic Stadium and they fired a cannon. And of course, what do uh, doves or pigeons do when they're startled? Oh, they no. poo. And oh, they no. Pooed. They pooed all over everyone in the Olympic Stadium. I, I mean, it's, <laughs> isn't it fantastic? It's, it's such an amazing detail that after all this, you know, brilliant stage management and, and this message going out about it, they all got dumped upon. I thought, oh I, well, of course, I had to write that. Yeah. Yeah, that's the fascinating thing that I've found with research. I've never really done uh, as much historical work as you uh, by any means. But in just the little times that I've dipped my my pen, I guess, into the history, I, I've always come up with some interesting and fascinating things that I never would have guessed. And so research is one of those. And I like how you mentioned earlier character with intention and research. These are two, I think, hallmarks of great of great fiction, great storytelling. Mm, absolutely, yeah, yeah. Now, your books have been published both traditionally and um, independently. Um, and that's a journey that a lot of people have, you know, big questions about. Should I go with a traditional publisher? Should I self-publish? Should I do both? Hybrid publishing? And I know there are a lot of different opinions out there, a lot of different words of advice. What, what's been your experience in being able to do both of these uh, venues to get your stories out there? Well, yeah, you're, you're speaking to a real, uh, um, you know, beginner at this because, uh, you know, I, 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 up until this week, I was only traditionally published. But it was literally this week that my novel Chasing the Wind, which is a total hybrid because it was, it's been traditionally published this week in Canada. So I have all the power of double day, you know, of Penguin Random House behind it, in, but only in Canada. And... You know, I'm sure I'm sure many of your readers know that this is a this has always been a tough industry, and it's got a lot tougher lately with with the you know um, uh, outlets closing down and publishers amalgamating and stuff. Um, and so and and also you know just editors being very cautious about about things. Um, so 
even though it was, uh, you know, I got a, a ton of, and I'm still getting a ton of support in Canada from Doubleday, um, no one else wanted to buy the book. Now, you know, I was deeply shocked that no American publisher wanted it because it's about an American heroine. You know, this yeah. is, you know, when they make the movie, Jennifer Lawrence is going to star, I tell you. <laughs> and then I'll have my revenge. Ha, ha, ha. But, um, but uh, uh, so, so, yeah, so when, the Ameri- when no American publisher would buy it and then no British publisher would buy it, they said, because it's about an American, right? So um, suddenly they didn't want that either. So despite all the, the high-concept storytelling, you know, I couldn't, I couldn't get it sold traditionally. And it just, I said, it, I went, well, okay, now's the time. Now's the time to do what I've seen other people do and launch myself into that world. So I've spent really the last three months at, at Self Pub University, you know, learning a ton of stuff. And, um, and I've been receiving such great help from people. People are so kind in this industry. And, you know, I know a lot of people who are, what I have now become the hybrid authors and um, you know many of whom were independent for years and have become so successful that, that the traditional publishers have come calling so so I decided to do all that so only this week I, I um, uploaded the book to Amazon you know having gone through a new cover having gone through all these uh, different you know formatting I've learned stuff and I'm Stephen I'm not particularly technical person so I've uh, <laughs> I've, uh, it's been, a, as I say, a steep learning curve, but it's up there and it's, it's got this lovely cover, um, similar to the Canadian cover, but, but, um, if I may say so, uh, I don't know how many listeners you have in Canada, but I prefer it. Um, <laughs> and, um, uh, and, and, you know, doing all that stuff, doing all the, uh, getting it, as I say, formatted properly, uh, copy edited. I've, I've done a, a, a print on demand version as well. Um, which I was really impressed with. I just got my author copies, and um, it's you know different cover than the Canadian version, but it's identical inside, really. I mean, it's really professionally done. So, I I, I mean, I'm gonna keep my foot in both camps. I have a right. fairly extensive backlist, which um, you know I've managed to get the rights back on. So I'm going to start getting those out there soon. Uh, I'm obviously hoping that Chasing the Wind. Um, excuse the pun, takes off and, <laughs> um, and uh, you know, does well as an indie because then I, um, you know, that will, that will obviously give me the green light to, to do more of it. And then from now on, I'll just see, you know, you hear a lot of people who go, I don't need traditional publishing. I sell well, way more than they could ever sell of mine. And I'm making... You know, if you're, if you're using Amazon or, or any of them, really, um, 70% of the royalties as opposed to 8 9% of the royalties. Yeah. So, um, I mean, you know, I, I still love traditional publishing as well. You know, the, the, the big advantage of things like, I mean, the, the editing particularly, you know, you get terrific editors. And I've had a great editor for this book, as I've always had great editors. So that that sort of stuff is priceless, and I'm not sure there's the quite the equivalent standard out there in the freelance editing world. Yeah. I'm sure there's some really good people, but that's harder to do. Um, so you know, if I can keep this balance of um, you know selling at least one traditional market and then taking <laughs> reaping all the rewards of it and putting it out indie, then you know, because when people buy Chasing the Wind, it's not your traditional self-published book, right? Because this has gone through the whole process at Random House. So, sure. it's, um, you know, they're getting, they're getting something quite special. 
And I think that's really important to emphasize. Uh, you know, today a lot of people say, well, I'll just self-publish it. And they almost always say just in front. Mm-hmm. Well, I'll just throw it out there and I'll, I'll just see what it does or something like that. But, um, but your approach is really like, look, I want the excellence to be as, as good or even better than it would be uh, you know, at a traditional publisher. I want the quality to be the same, the editing, the cover art, everything to be of excellence. And I really respect that because it shows, you know, that um, you want what's best for your readers, too. It shows a great deal of respect to readers. And sometimes I feel when people say, well, just self-publish or something, maybe they haven't edited it as much or gone through the process to make sure the excellence is there. And I look at that as a bit of a disrespect to the people who might be buying the book down the line. I absolutely, I couldn't agree more. Yeah, I think it's it's very important. I, I you know, the, the, there is a lot of stuff out there which is obviously doesn't meet the standards that that I would certainly seek to achieve. Um, you know, I think it's it's wonderful that people can can have their stories out there, but but unfortunately, the only the, the problem with with the whole self publishing thing, of course, is that there are you know millions of stories out there, and you know I think with the best will in the world, there's a, an awful high percentage of those you just simply wouldn't want to read because they haven't gone through the standard yeah. checks. They haven't gone through the editing process. Um, leave, leave aside, you know, where they began out of, you know, where someone might have a lovely story to tell, but not have done the work or had the education that allow them to do that. Haven't gone to the classes, haven't gone to the conferences, haven't really worked at their craft, but just think, you know, oh, it's writing. Anyone can write. I'll just put this in a in a document and and post it essentially, sure. and and that's. That's not going to help anyone in the world, I don't think. That's going to just lower everyone's uh, standards and expectations. And the other thing it does is it makes it much harder to be heard because there's so much noise out there. You know, too. I mean, I've done various things in terms of the marketing and the promo, but, you know, it's still, I'm not certain how many people are aware that my book is out this week. Yeah. You know, and, and I know that if I was able to connect some people with it, you know, a, a large percentage of those people might well be interested and might well want to read it. But it's, it is hard to be heard these days. And that's because of all the noise out there of a lot of people who really need to go to class before they post their books, you know. Now, you also do, as you mentioned earlier, teach on a writing, creative writing, and, and you have a master's degree in, in creative writing. What, what are some of the um, maybe... I guess principles that you might say, these are really important for doing the very thing you just emphasized, and that is raising the uh, standard of excellence. Do you have any advice for some of these authors who, who say, look, I've got this book, and, and I think it might be ready, but, um, but I'm not really sure yet? You know, hmm. what, what words of advice would you give, give to aspiring novelists? Well, you know, I, in a way, I'd, I'd start way before that. I'd start with the the initial impulse to write, and uh, I'm what what held me back from writing my novels for years. You know, because I, I really only wrote my, started writing my first novel in my forties, even though I'd been wanting to write them since I was a child. I would think I'd written a couple of plays, but um, was was the idea that it had to be immediately good. You know, the idea that that any writing I was setting down, if it didn't meet the standard of my heroes, wasn't worth doing. And what I discovered and what got me writing and keeps me writing is that that writing is a process. 
Mm. And to use the old cliche, it's a journey, not a destination. Though, of course, the destination is implied. You want the finished book. Yeah. But, but you don't think about the destination while you're doing it. The idea is that each stage of the journey has a different sort of impetus. Mm. And so I, uh, when I set out, I tend not to outline too much. You know, I'm not querying people who outline because I think that's fine. What, you know, the, the old rule, whatever works, works. But um, I like to evolve the story through more organically, through the characters, trying to find out who they are, trying to see what they're doing, that character in action thing, trying to get them to tell me who they are. And, and gradually the story will emerge. But the word I remove from the first draft is the word good. It's not about good. Mm. Um, it's not about bad either. It's not about anything um, judgmental. It's simply about that stage of the process is getting the story down. And at the end of it, you'll have a draft and you'll think, okay, now I can start to apply more critical, uh, which doesn't mean actually sort of, oh, this is terrible, but it actually means, hmm, how could this work better? And so that, that's what I would do. By the time you've gone through that process a couple of times, it's probably ready to show it to someone else. And this is where you have to be careful, you know, pick your, pick your editors wisely. Um, I would always pay for it if I could and, and pay as much as you can really, because the more you pay, the probably the better you're going to get. Um, I know that's not possible for everyone, but using your friends and your family who are invested in you in a sort of non-professional way is always going to be a bit of a problem in terms of getting the end result, I think, that, sure. you, that you desire because they, they're invested in you. Oh, darling, it's wonderful. Oh, oh it's marvelous. Oh, it's so good. <laughs> <laughs> or, yeah, I'm going to stop that. I'm going to nip this rebellion in the bud. He needs to be at his office or she needs right. to be, you know, behind the counter. I'm not going to let this happen. So, you know, there's all sorts of personal things that can get in the way, I think. Um, but that's that would be my advice would be um to to um you know make sure you you understand that it's a process um encourage yourself to accept that it's a process and and work through the stages of it and then the later stages are definitely about getting a good opinion from someone who's you know not connected to you in a, in an emotional way i think that you need to um uh, you need someone who's going to who's going to uh, basically help you tell the story you want to tell in the best way possible. And sometimes we all know, you know, this as a writer as well, Steve, that 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 sometimes you um, you can't uh, um, you can't see it. You you think you see it, but you can't see it. And an editor will say, "Well, hang on, why is that happening?" Oh, well, it's obvious because, but well, it's not obvious because it's not actually there on the page. Right. You manage to leave that crucial bit of information out that you understand, but a reader wouldn't. So, so that's what an editor does. It, an editor helps you tell your story, clarify your intent, and and that's why it's, I think it's very important to have a good one. Yeah, I think the best editors do exactly what you said. I've had some editors over the years. Uh, with some different projects who I feel like are trying to almost get their voice into the work. They're altering things so it's more like they would write it than the way I would. And I feel like those those have been truthfully quite frustrating. Because Yeah, no, you don't, you don't want yeah. those people. You don't yeah. want frustrated writers as your editor. You want <laughs> editors as your editors, you know. I mean, I, I've been very lucky in that I have not encountered that. I mean, I've been aware of it, or, you know, occasionally over a, you know, like a... I actually had my very first copy editor was a bit like that, bizarrely, when they should, you know, just have been checking, 
you know, grammar and spelling and the odd date were actually sort of trying to reshape some of my sentences. And I went, you know, even though I was new, I went, this isn't right. Uh, right. Give me a new copy editor. So, um, but no, you don't want that. I, it was interesting. There's a, there's quite a good movie out there. I don't know if you've seen it. Um, it didn't do very well, but, but it, maybe it was too specific, but it was called Genius. And it was about no, Maxwell. Did you see it? No. Uh-uh. Oh, it's good. It's um, Colin Firth plays Maxwell Perkins, the famous editor of Hemingway oh, yeah. and Scott Fitzgerald and Thomas Wolfe. And the film's really about uh, uh, Thomas Wolfe and him. And, and, um, and, it, and Thomas Wolfe's played by Jude Law very well. Um, Nicole Kidman's in it, Laura Linney as well. But Colin Firth, as Maxwell Perkins at one point, says this is the thing that, that torments you know, the, the editor and disturbs his sleep. Um, uh, am I making the book better, or am I just making it different? Ooh, nice. Mm. Nice. I think I need to send a copy of that to a couple of the editors I've had over there. Yeah, absolutely. All of a sudden, they're like, what? What's this? I just got this anonymous DVD in the mail. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, you don't want. It's called Genius. It's a good. I, li- I liked it a lot, especially if you're a writer. I think you'll like it. But but that's the thing. You don't want an editor who has an agenda around your work. You know, they're going to have an agenda. Of course, they are. They're, they're professionals working. But it it shouldn't be about your work. The actual writing. It can be about the marketing. It can be about you know, the promo, it can be about all that other stuff connected with the work, but it shouldn't be about the storytelling. This has been a really fun uh, conversation. I've enjoyed just listening to some of your stories, some of your insights. I feel like people, regardless of whether they're writing a story or maybe telling a story orally or presentation, that they can take some very specific ideas away. And um, so where's the best place online for people to either connect with you or to order your book, Chasing the Wind? Well, uh, I have a website, um, cchumphreys.com. Um, people need to spell it uh, the, the Humphreys way, which is H-U-M-P-H-R-E-Y-S. So that's cchumphreys.com. And if they go there, my, I'm in the process. I'm going to be revamping it. It's a little old-fashioned, my website, but they certainly get the info there. And um, if, if you're on the home page, you can um, click on, there's a free story, actually, which, uh, which is to do with my 18th century hero, Jack Absolute. And it's called The Birth of Jack Absolute. If you clicked on that, you could join my mailing list and then keep up with me that way. And you get a free story as well. Um, there's also the information and the links uh, to do with uh, uh, the, the new novel, Chasing the Wind and how to track that down. The best way to track it down, certainly if you're in the States, is to just go to Amazon.com and go to the Kindle store um, and, and just to type in Chasing the Wind. And um, it should take you to my indie produced one, which is on the discount sale at the moment of 4.99. But uh, if it takes you to a more expensive one, that's the Canadian version, which shouldn't be on sale there, which is slightly annoying. <laughs> um, but well, yeah, so yeah. go to the Kindle store. And, and the, but then if you wanted a POD, you just go to books and do the same thing, Chasing the Wind. All right, good. So print on demand is available here in the yeah, States yeah, as well. Yeah, yeah, very good quality. Print, print on demand. Yeah, it's 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 great. Well, for more information about um, my writing, you can go to stephenjames.net and also the upcoming characterization conference is at characterconference.com in Atlanta in October. Of course, we always thank everyone for listening and for Suspense Radio for producing the show, and please check out their other fine broadcasts and podcasts. 
For more information about this show and for other guests, click to thestoryblender.com. And folks, always remember, the art of the story is all in the blend. We'll see you next time.